Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It is David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time. There ain't no horse like the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey Ron, what's going on, man? Oh, geez, man, uh, just uh, just enjoying it. Uh, got a little uh, 60, close to 70-degree day out here today, and uh, it's really beautiful, man. Big-time rain, but but other than that, uh, it, it's pretty today. A lot of blue sky, man. Love to see that. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the same here and definitely warmed up, so we're hoping the groundhog was wrong because he said we were going to get six more weeks. And I just, I, we just don't want six more weeks, but we just, we'd have to take it as one day at a time, right? That's it, man. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I get a little bit, a little bit of that colder stuff than you do. I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. But being down there in uh, South Alabama, uh, you're getting, you're getting a little bit, a uh, little bit warmer than me. And, uh, Indeed. Yeah. Listen, do you do you get a chance to come off the mountain very often? Are you stuck up on the mountain? What's the deal with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to come off the mountain yesterday. As a matter of fact, I had a computer problem, and and I took it over to a gentleman uh, that works on it and uh, in, in his home. But he lived on the east side of uh, Newport, Tennessee, which is not mm-hmm. too far from me. And uh, wow, just it's just amazing, Dave, how beautiful this part of the country is. This place where we went, uh, man, it had a beautiful river, man, that just ran right along the side of the road. Wow. And uh, big mountains on the backside of it. Yeah. Uh, actually, the Smoky Mountain National Park's on the backside of that river. And, uh, wow, it was just beautiful. And then we went into a little area in which <laughs> they had these hills that were about three or 400 feet straight up and down, and uh, cows cows grazing on the side of them. I couldn't figure <laughs> out, man, how they hang in there, man. Because I think, I, I think I've figured it out. I think two of their legs are shorter than the other yeah. two. They <laughs> sure make it look that way, don't they? Yeah, they do. They Absolutely. certainly make it look that way. But, yeah, it was yeah. a beautiful trip. I got to see another part of this country that uh, up here that's just fantastic, man. It's, it's just amazing. Just about everywhere you go, you see something different. And uh, it, was, it was a nice little nice little ride yesterday. But I'm ready to go today, my man. <laughs> hey, listen, you, you're always ready to go. And, listen, I, we last week – we started talking about this, and I know you were about to turn 30 years old, and there was so much happening in your life in February of 78, Ron. I can't wait to hear where we're going to be riding this week. So how about a little tease about what's in store for us today? Because I know you got something planned big time. Well, you know, we're going to visit two territories again today. Uh, that's that's where we are now. Uh, we're really, really close to opening the second territory. We're going to spend some time down there today and this one on the Gulf Coast with southeastern Pensacola. And uh, and we're actually going to be uh, within uh, just a few days of the first matches ever in that territory in Dothan, Alabama wow. on Friday night, March the 3rd, 1978. Actually, is on my 30th birthday. <laughs> really? So you are opening a new wrestling company on your 30th birthday. I mean, was that intentional? Did you plan that? 
<laughs> you would think I did maybe, but right. no, no, David, you know, it wasn't intentional, you know, and it happened that way because I had dates from Vince McMahon Sr. on Andre the Giant. And those dates were booked about three months in advance of this, of this uh, March the 3rd date. And, uh, you know, so I, I was going to have uh, Andre the Giant, and he was booked to wrestle in Knoxville. Uh, on this trip, he, for the first time, was going to be able to stay multiple days because uh, Andre enjoyed himself so much every visit here. Mm-hmm. He had asked Vince to give him at least three or four days down there in that territory. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, because, uh, man, he really, really loved Knoxville in this area. So, you know, he, so he uh, – so uh, Vince gave him to us for not the three or four days he asked for. He gave him to us for five days. Wow. wow. So he came in basically on Wednesday, March the 1st, which is just uh, then uh, basically about the next uh, studcast or so. Yeah. And he left on the following Monday, uh, March the 6th. So the opening date, man, as soon as I got those dates from Vince three months earlier, I looked at my calendar and – uh and that I set my opening night for southeastern Pensacola to be on one of those dates that Andre was in town. You know, and uh, what better way to open a new territory than with the most recognizable wrestler in the world on the card? You know? Yeah. So uh, that in itself kind of made a big statement to fans in that part of the country that something very big, literally, no pun intended, <laughs> was about to happen there. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it also meant Andre would be there in southeastern Pensacola for the next day. And he was going to be on the first live TV show ever done by Southeastern and uh, WTVY Studios. Wow. Wow. OK, so, I mean, literally, you were knocking it out of the park on your first two days in business there, Ron. Opening up with Andre the Giant. Speaking of knocking it out of the park, I heard you've been doing that, too. On your Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel, I knew you got some new stuff happening. Tell us what's going on there. Well, uh, yes, man, we surely do. Uh, I sent out messages on social media uh, not too long ago, hoping fans could help me find some unseen Southeastern wrestling shows from 1978 until Continental started in 1985. And uh, and that started to produce a lot of activity and, uh, and some discovery of some new shows that have never been seen on YouTube. So I'm adding these shows to my chart of Southeastern Pensacola TV shows produced on WTVY TV in Dothan, Alabama. Are you kidding? Whoa. Yeah, yeah. I'm wow. Able, yeah, I mean, I've got I've got people now that are sending me shows that, uh, and a lot of them I can't I can't see that they've ever been shown on YouTube before. Wow. So I'm compiling as many of these TV shows from that time frame as possible before I start to add uh, add any of them to the Southeastern Rewind channel yeah. because I want to run them in that order that I promised people that I was going to do in the order they were produced. Yeah. So uh, what I'm confident, you know, when I'm confident that I have as many of these as possible, the classic Southeastern wrestling TV shows will start coming every week, man. I'm going to start throwing them on there and then we're going to see Southeastern shows that have never been, a lot of them have never been seen on YouTube. Yeah. So the big news for today is uh, until we get the Southeastern TV shows lined up, we have found something, Dave, that you're going to really, really uh, find to be uh, truly amazing. Uh, <laughs> we have some, we've discovered some TV shows from the old Gulf Coast territory. And, uh, and, and that was the, that, that was there right before Southeastern started, right before we went in there. It was the territory that had been there before us. Yeah. And we're going to begin to show those shows. One, one per week, every Monday on the YouTube channel. All right, so uh, let me get this right. You found TV shows from the 1970s produced by Gulf Coast Wrestling with old stars from that era. Now, and when you say Gulf Coast Wrestling, what what territory, what area are you talking? Are you talking about along the actual Gulf Coast? Do you include Dothan in that? How does that? How do you do that? Yeah, that's it. I mean, okay. you know, they. I think they were doing two television uh, stations. Uh, they were producing a show in Mobile, and they were producing a show in Dothan mm-hmm. during this time frame. Uh, I think we might have discovered some of the Mobile shows, but uh, you know, we've got uh, as many as seventeen of those boys. Wow! You know that have never 
been seen on YouTube. Wow. You know? So, uh, so uh, we're really going to be starting to bring stuff to people on YouTube that uh, they, they're not going to find anywhere. Man. And, uh, and I think these people, people are going to find this interesting, uh, these, these uh, Gulf Coast television shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, the first one I saw a little piece of was a uh, cowboy, Bob Kelly. Hmm. You know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it really takes, takes fans back and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, to our knowledge, they'd never been seen on YouTube. And, uh, you know, now we're finding real wrestling history, man, that hasn't been seen in 44 years or more, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> real, really old stuff yeah. that, uh, that is pretty darn good quality wise, amazingly enough. Yeah. So uh, here's kind of the next schedule, man, for for the week for Southeastern Rewind. Uh, on Mondays, we're going to add these new historic Gulf Coast TV wrestling shows every week, one every week. Uh, every Tuesday, we're going to add a new Stud Stories episode, each of which is always about a different subject. Wednesdays, we're going to release the newest studcast. We've been doing that for quite a while now. Thursday, we present another new Continental TV show from 1985, shown in the order they were produced. And, uh, wow, fans really love those. And on Sundays, fans are going to keep getting the Southeastern classic films from the Southeastern Knoxville days until Southeastern is ready to take off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. We're working our way toward that and uh, something new every day, uh, most of which has never been seen before on YouTube is going to be available right now. That's what I want to do. That's my next goal is to put something new on there every day. Hey, that's cool. And listen, I know I know I've known for a while. You have a ton of fans in Tennessee, especially around the Knoxville area. And maybe I didn't realize how big the fan base was here in Southeast Alabama. So you really heard from a lot of folks, a lot of fans that have videotapes of all of these shows for quite some time now. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, you know, these are southeastern fans uh, out of the Gulf Coast area. Yeah. In fact, uh, Knoxville fans couldn't get these shows. Wow. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they were only seen in the, in the Gulf Coast area yeah. down there along the Gulf Coast of the United States up yeah. into, say, Montgomery, Alabama, mid-Alabama. Yeah. Later on, they're going to be in Birmingham. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we were at this point, uh, we had uh, shows going on in the northern part of, uh, of the south yeah. uh, in the Tennessee area. And we had uh, another set of shows going on down there on the Gulf Coast area. Totally different talent, totally yeah. different commentators, totally different show. Yeah. All right. And having grown up along the Gulf Coast, and I'll say in the panhandle of Florida over the years, I can't wait to see these incredible Gulf Coast TV shows from back in my younger days. That's what we grew up on here. So it sounds like fans from all over are really trying to help you out and build what is going to become the best old school YouTube channel in history, Stud. So way to go. And way to go to the fans, too. Well, you know, uh, yeah, and I definitely appreciate the fans for their help, man, and uh, and they're certainly stepping up, and I uh, and and I still need their help. So, if anyone out there listening has Southeastern TV shows that were taped from 1978 to the summer of 1985 on your home VCR or any other type of uh, of, of type of recording or copy of those shows or that one show or, or multiple shows. And they're pretty decent quality. Contact me, you know, and uh, and uh, you can contact me on my on one of my three uh, Facebook pages. Uh, simply message me about them, and I'll get back to you. And if you're not already a friend, please go to the Ron Full of the Tennessee Studs page. It's the it's a uh, it's a great one to, and it's the only place that you can go and like and follow me there, and you automatically become a friend. So then send me a personal message. If you haven't been a friend and you become a friend, send me a personal message about your shows and I'll try to get back to you. And, you know, and, uh, and if you're a Twitter follower, you can go to Ron Fuller Welch and message me there too. Wow. The, all of that is terrific news and fans who are already fans are loving this and now they're going to be loving it even more. So where else are we riding today besides Southeastern Pensacola stud? Well, after today's training, man, we're going to start uh, right back north again into southeastern Knoxville. We got another great double world title card, man, on a very unusual Monday night in the Coliseum. 
the NWA champ, Harley Race, is going to face off against one of his most unorthodox opponents, I'm sure, uh, and that's Joe LaDuke. And the card is loaded, and so is the TV two days earlier, and we're going to discuss both. We'll get the results of the championship card, and we'll talk about the attendance. In the learning tree, our question is, um, with so many great wrestlers leaving southeastern Knoxville, headed south, who was coming to replace them? So that's a very solid question, you know, and I look forward to answering that one. Well, and not surprisingly, it it sounds like another fantastic stud cast, and we're about to get this thing underway. So tell us about how you managed to get down to Dothan, Alabama, to take care of promotion business when you were working almost every night in Knoxville. How does a man do that? And they're, what, about five, four, four hundred miles apart? Well, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, yeah, 500 miles, basically yeah, yeah. about 500 miles, man. And as a matter of fact, you know, I was about to become a frequent flyer for the first time since 1973, 74, when I was going to St. Louis regularly out of Florida. You know, and I'm about to enter basically the busiest year of my wrestling career, 1978. And I'm going to fly more miles and drive more miles than 1978 than ever. And I'll be working two territories at once for most of that entire year. So with only 11 days after the Knoxville championship card that we're going to be talking about in this stud cast, uh, is 11 days later, we're going to have our opening night in Dothan, Alabama. And, and I was under the gun, man, to be quite honest with you, to make it happen in southeastern Pensacola. But I was more organized than I thought. Uh, and only because I had discovered with my experiences with my first Southeastern territory, that ownership by myself was difficult, too difficult, uh, especially if you're going to have another territory. So this time I set my next territory up with four very important part owners uh, as part of this company. And I knew that by myself, there was no way I was going to be able to run two territories alone. Uh, It was hard enough to run Knoxville by itself. Uh, much less a, a separate one 500 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. So so every one of these partners owned a small percentage, but with the agreement that they would do more than just wrestle every night. Uh, let's start with uh, Roy Lee Welch. And Roy Lee was going to assist me, and he happened to be a relative, second cousin to me. And, uh, you know, uh, I felt like I wanted to uh, get some family members involved. Uh, because it was a great opportunity for them to do well and to learn more about the business than just what happens in the ring. (laughs) So Roy was going to assist me in running the southeastern Pensacola end of the company, as well as wrestle uh, when needed. And he would be the guy who would represent the company, not as a part owner, but an employee only, who handled everything from advertising to buildings to setting up the rings and making sure that all of that was handled, handling the box office every night and mm-hmm. whatever basically was necessary down there in southeastern Pensacola. And he was the guy that was going to be making that trip that, that you just mentioned earlier to Dothan, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't going to be making this one. I was <laughs> sending Roy, and he was going to start learning how to handle business, that type of business. So uh, Robert, my brother, He was uh, committed. Uh, He was another guy that I selected to be a part of it. And he was committed to booking the northern end while Bob Armstrong and I were handling the building of the southern end of the territory, which was going to be a big job. Take take a lot of time and a lot of effort. And our original plan was once we got both these territories working, was to switch the talent and the bookers in the two territories once a year which that's a great concept there to take all those guys that have been in Knoxville now for four years, some of them for three, four years and run them south into Pensacola and let them stay there for a year with the same booker that's used to handling them. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, go back to Knoxville again. Uh, And, uh, you know, this, this was really a great concept and we really didn't have the opportunity to make that happen. And uh, we're going to get into that in 1979, why that occurred. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was the original plan. Rob was going to handle the north end. Bob and I go to the south to begin with, then switch territories, entire crews and bookers 
uh, once a year because that's about how long it took for a crew to to uh, to get stale. Yeah, to where fans had seen them enough. So Bob uh, Armstrong, uh, Jimmy Golden, obviously another cousin. Uh, he was going to be uh, involved in the company, and he was committed to working both ends and anything else that I asked him to do. And then I took someone that wasn't a family member, but who to me was one of the great talents in all of wrestling. And uh, that was Bob Armstrong. Yeah. And uh, Bob uh, really appreciated the opportunity to become a part owner in a wrestling company. And uh, wow, did he ever do a great job, man. And, and uh, you know, he committed himself to working on either end as necessary. Mm-hmm. Plus, Bob was a great at acquiring talent. He talked to guys and guys respected him and he knew so many wrestlers that he was able to bring in guys that probably me or Rob or Jimmy uh, couldn't have. Wow. And uh, he was also going to do some booking if he was needed. And, uh, and he learned to be a great booker as well. Yeah. So how are you, were you able to keep everybody's ownership secret all of the years that you were there or did, I mean, was it something you tried to do? Well, I tell you, man, uh, you know, it was extremely important. Uh, I had been in Knoxville at this point for uh, almost four years and uh, nobody knew I owned it. And, you know, I, I, I knew pretty much how, how to do it. And uh, so, uh, yes, you know, I, I was uh, committed to that. And uh, so uh, the, the, uh, I, I kept guys uh, in the background as much as possible. Uh, they never told anybody they owned any part of it. Right. And, uh, you know, it was pretty difficult for people to trace down who owned this company. So uh, I showed up at TV stations myself and at buildings occasionally. But when I did, I was always went in there as kind of a representative of the company, hmm. you know, just saying, hey, I'm here, you know, to say hello for the southeastern guys. And, uh, you know, and I went there to maintain a good relationship. TVs and buildings, that was extremely important. Uh, And it was never common knowledge that any of us were ever owners the entire time we were there. So it was just never said, so people could guess if they wanted to, but it was just never announced. And that's probably, obviously, the the better way to go. So tell us what Roy Lee Welch did on his first trip into Dothan. What was that like? Okay, so this, that's a good question, Dave. I mean, you know, because people, uh, I, w- I would want to get people in these trainings here an idea of what goes down. So Roy flew into Dothan, Alabama on Friday, February 17th, 1978, uh, two weeks before the first event. And he was picked up by Charlie Platt, who was the commentator, going to be the commentator for Southeastern Wrestling. He was the past commentator for Gulf Coast Wrestling. So, and he was... Uh, Roy was taken to, to the newspaper to set up the ad for the first event. Uh, we were going to wrestle in the Houston County Farm Center. Uh, it was, a, as you're very familiar with, a pretty big, nice building, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the matches were going to be held there. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, Roy, uh, Roy went, started with the newspaper. He got the ad set up. Uh, then he was taken to the TV station to make sure everything was ready. We were going to start producing the new Southeastern show in their studio on March the 4th, 1978, Mm -hmm. the day after the first event. And he also brought uh, TV advertising for the first event. While he was there, he set up interviews with some wrestlers that could come in there on that Friday, uh, the the date of the first event. And uh, and there he checked to see if there were any other programs there uh, that uh, might help to promote the event. So, you know, Roy spent, uh, I think he spent two days there at this point, uh, yeah. just taking care of that type of stuff. And uh, it was his it was his first uh, opportunity to do some of that. And luckily, I'd been uh, uh, handling towns for the Florida office, man, George. Uh, right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, wrestling out of Tampa. And uh, I have ran West Palm Beach and a lot of other small towns around it. And I knew how to do it all. So uh, Roy, Roy caught on to it really quick. Yeah, I mean, and and really, he made it sound. It sounds like a well old old machine, like Roy had done it many times before. But it, it obviously wasn't the first time you guys had dealt with this type of thing. So let's. Why don't we get a look at that double world championship Knoxville card 
for Monday, February 20th, 1978. I think you started building this, really building this up last week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you got the world champion coming to town, you, you usually build up for several weeks ahead of it, obviously. And, uh, and this was a big card. Uh, Mike Stallings uh, wrestled against the hangman who was a guy named Roger Smith, who was going to be on his way to becoming an assassin down there in southeastern Pensacola. Jimmy Golden uh, wrestled against David Schultz, who was also going to be on his way to southeastern Pensacola. And in a special event uh, with a no DQ clause, Ronnie Garvin was back again after Roy Lee Welch. I mean, he had several encounters with Roy Lee, uh, uh, and he wasn't able to beat Roy. You know, and he beat the hell out of him, but he never got the pin. So, you know, Ronnie Garvin was back again. He asked for a no DQ, and he was just deadly determined to, to hurt Roy Lee. I don't know really what there was about that, but he seemed like that's what he had in mind. Huh. Uh, then there's a six-man tag on this one. Anything goes, man. Texas death match, and uh, that was Robert, uh, the Tennessee stud. And the Georgia Jawjacker were go up against Ron Wright, Don Carson, and the Assassin. Ricky Gibson was going to get another shot at the Mongolian Stomper Southeastern title. And uh, obviously, Stomper was managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And then there were two world title matches. Tony Charles wrestled Nelson Royal for his World Junior Heavyweight Championship. And then Arlie Race defended his NWA World Heavyweight Championship for the third time in southeastern history against jola duke i'm telling you that is a fantastic card ron so tell us about the tv saturday february 18th two days before this event tell us what was up on the big tv show okay so you know it opened with less running down which was another great tv card because it was rating period show man it was the third week in february of 1978 so uh on this TV show, we got one world champion defending his title on television. We got another world champion interviewing, and we got a Southeastern Championship match and a six-man tag. <laughs> I mean, you can't load one up any more than that. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and so uh, when the cameras backed away after Les, uh, you know, told everybody what to expect in the program, there sat Ronnie Garvin with him. And uh, on the screen behind them was a huge still shot. It had Roy Lee Welch standing on the apron of the ring. Uh, and uh, Ronnie Garvin was on the top rope. And Joe Duke was laying in the middle of the ring. Ronnie Garvin was wow. about to jump off the top rope in his throat. Wow. And uh, there's Roy Lee, who have real good friends with Joe Duke. And, uh, and it turns out... Uh, that uh, it wasn't the first time that he jumped off that top rope and, and, uh, and Joe LaDuke, he, he had already jumped off the top rope and Joe LaDuke's throat mm -hmm. once. He went yeah. for it again, and Roy Lee had time to get to the ring. And uh, so that was the still shot. There's Roy Lee at his hand on Ronnie Garvin's rear end. Joe LaDuke's laying there. And, uh, and uh, so Les was about to ask Garvin his very first question, uh, but he never got a chance to finish it. Garvin told us that what had happened to him in this match was going to get Roy Lee Welch hurt real bad in two days. You know, that he, this boy deserved it. And, you know, that he would have mm -hmm. had it not been for Roy Lee. And he should have been on this TV today, Les, talking about how he was going to beat Harley Race for the NWA world title next yeah. Monday. Uh -huh. And instead, he said, uh, now he's he's going to be facing, not going to be facing Harley Race on Monday night, but that cowboy punk Roy Lee Well. <laughs> so, you know, so, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> Garvin really had a had a really bad 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 thoughts about poor Roy Lee. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Well, Les broke in, and he reminded Garvin that this was the second time that he'd been on that top rope, like I just said. Uh, in the finals of the tournament and, uh, and to see who was going to meet Harley Race for the world title that he'd already jumped off the top rope in Joe LaDuke's throat once. But, uh, you know, that was before this shot was taken. 
So Garvin screamed at last. <laughs> he asked him a great question. He says, uh, he says, what difference did that make? He said, this picture behind us is why I lost the match. <laughs> that don't make any difference that I jumped off in his throat. I didn't get the job done, basically. Right. right? You know, yeah. and this story right here of him shoving me, that tells the whole story. So Garvin told Les he should shut up and run the video so fans could see what that punk did to him. So after a long discussion and that big still shot sitting behind him, the video started rolling. And uh, when it ran, obviously it showed Roy pushing Garvin off, off the top rope. And, you know, when you get shoved off the top rope, you have to make a real quick decision, man, as to how you're going to keep from breaking a leg <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. or hurting yourself badly, you yeah. know? So uh, Garvin decided that his best uh, counter for this was just to turn the flip, and he did. He landed on his back, and Joe LaDuke had moved out of the way, and Joe just rolled over there and sacked him up, crouched the leg, one, two, three. It was all over. <laughs> so Garvin screamed again, man, for him to stop the tape before it showed him count him out. <laughs> It just showed Joe hooked the leg, and he said, that's enough, that's enough, you know. And he says, you know, bless his stature, he says, that match doesn't matter anymore, not now. He said, now it's time to hurt Roy the Cowboy. He said, that punk could <laughs> cost me a title shot, and uh, he said, I intend to do just that in two days. And he said, I, we, he had a no-DQ match with the Cowboy, and that was perfect. He said he could get even with the lumberjack because the lumberjack was big buddies with Roy the cowboy. And he said, when I hurt the cowboy, he says, it's just like hurting the lumberjack. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Les and Garvin's still rolling and Les is trying to work his way in. And he started to ask a question, but Garvin left to sit saying, you know, the time for talking is done. He said, the question you should be asking me now, Les Thatcher, is not when, but how bad am I going to hurt Roy Lee Welch? So, and he left the set. So uh -huh. the studio erupted in booze, but the mood changed pretty quickly because uh, Roy the Cowboy entered the studio. He was in the first <laughs> match. Mm -hmm. so, so Roy made pretty good use of his rare TV time, and he won using his father's Lester Welch is abdominal stretch. Roy had been using that the entire time he had been there as his, as a finish hold, and it was a great one, boy. And during the first interview show of the show, it became even more apparent how much Garvard hated Roy Lee Welch. Garvard could only focus in the his part of the interview on hurting Roy. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you. That's about all he was getting said. So, you know, when it was, boy, the, I call him the laid back cowboy, I guess, was he was very complimentary of his opponent, saying only that if he kept being able not to be beaten by a great talent like Ronnie Garvin, he goes, sooner or later, he might steal a win from him. <laughs> he might even beat Garvin, right? So, you know, his mm -hmm. point was, I'm just in there trying to survive. I don't want to lose if I can help it. So the second match was the first of two championship matches on this show. Mongolian Stomper, wearing his southeastern belt, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., entered the studio. Boy, that brought forth the chorus of boost. Uh, they didn't care for that, to, that tandem. So his opponent was a real surprise for fans. And he was the ever-popular Jimmy Golden man. And the fans let Jimmy know how happy they were to see the Stomper have to wrestle a real talent like Jimmy on TV for the belt, right? So uh, so Ricky Gibson was in the back, uh, and he was actually going to be wrestling uh, Stomper for the title on Monday night. He got he got a big round of applause, and he came out and sat down with Les at the set. And Gibson, like I said, was – uh, hooked up to wrestle for the title uh, the next Monday night. And uh, while wow, this match between Stomper and Golden was great, tremendous TV match. And Golden had a Stomper going toward the end of it. And Gigi kind of got a cheap shot on Jimmy when the ref's back was turned. And the Stomper was pretty good at using Gigi. Uh, and uh, he would grab a referee and turn him around to face uh, Stomper and then Gigi would get something done behind his back. So uh, Gigi went down in his uh, in his little uh, <laughs> normal uh, 
the wear that he he had every time that he came to the ring, and uh, you know he grabbed himself something out of there, uh, and uh, he he nailed Jimmy with it. Mm. And, uh, so, and so you know, and the, it was a so like I said, the match was great, man. Up until that point, now Ricky Gibson and, and Jimmy are very close buddies, and uh, Gibson sees what goes on, and he sees Gigi do what he normally does, interfere in the match. And uh, Ricky Gibson went from being a commentator with Les to being an eliminator, man. And he left the set, and he grabbed G.G. from behind in a sleeper hole. And the studio exploded, man. Obviously, match was still going on. Golden's down a little bit, but the stomper left the ring. And he went for Gibson, you know, because he's going to go out there and obviously help his manager. And, uh, and uh, he stayed out there too long. He got counted out. And uh, Jimmy got his hand raised. But obviously couldn't win the title by disqualification, and they couldn't win it on a countout. So that didn't stop the studio audience from celebrating, though. They they really got into it, <laughs> and they and they got to very do very little of that when the stomper was in the ring. Usually, I mean, the stomper didn't give the crowd chance to to do much celebrating. So when Gibson jumped in the ring after a stomper and them went to the dressing room and GG, then he raised Jimmy's hand. Uh, and those 200 people, about 200 people was in those that studio in Knoxville. Uh, they sounded like 2,000. So Gigi was on fire, man. The next interview he did from Studio B, and uh, obviously he was focused on Gibson's interference and, and how he sneaked up behind him and put a sleeper hold on him from behind. And uh, Gibson and Golden, when it was their turn, they were just as fired up as Gigi was. And uh, they said uh, – you know, wins over the Mongolian Stomper were, were very rare, and this Gibson and Stomper title match two days later is going to be a big match on that championship card. Wow. That's pretty – I think that's – yeah, that's pretty obvious. All right, look, I think this is a great place to do a break. Let's do that. And when we come back, we'll have the personality profile. And who who is in this one, Stud? Well, this one has the NWA champion Harley Race and the Canadian lumberjack Joel Duke. Oh, yeah, because they are about to duke it out, and that is coming soon. All right, so in the meantime, while we're getting ready for the break, let's remember to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Subscribe, ring the bell to get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on YouTube. You ring the bell, we'll ring yours every time something new is ready. And be sure to tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind as well. Okay, so Harley Race and the Canadian Lumberjack, Joe LaDuke. The personality profile is next when we come back on this studcast. One of the best DVD collections ever done is the tremendous collector's edition of Continental Championship Wrestling. Get it now at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. Five DVDs, 12 hours, more than 50 full-length matches with tremendous stars of the premier CCW territory. Worldwide talent, the Armstrongs, the Fullers, the Riches, Arn Anderson, Austin Idol, Exotic Adrian Street, Jimmy Golden, Lord Humongous, Kevin Sullivan and the new Guinea Headhunters, the Nightmares, and many more. A five-star rating from hundreds of buyers. Don't miss this opportunity to own a piece of old-school wrestling history at tnstud.com. TNstud.com. Click Stud Store. Only $39.99 with free shipping. Hey, welcome back. Another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. All right. So, Ron, it is profile time with two huge stars. Tell us about this. This is this is really going to be cool. Well, this is this is a, a really interesting situation here. Joe, uh, you know, uh, he never got to spend a whole lot of time in in uh in doing a lot of interviews. So uh, uh, Joe joined Les, obviously, and they sit in the big chairs with Les, him and Les in the chair. And the Harley Race sent his thoughts via video. So the fans loved it because it was live, and they could interact with both Les and LaDuke. They were right there real close to Joe. And, uh, and fans loved Joe LaDuke. So Joe was as excited as I'd ever seen him at the beginning of this. And he told us that he had only been in the ring with one NWA world champion, Terry Funk. 
and mm. that they were both bleeding in that match and that <laughs> he expected the same thing to happen with Harley Race because he had a compliment for Harley right off. You know, he said, because Harley Race was a fighter and not just in the ring, but in life itself. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and that was pretty much true. Harley had that horrible accident and uh, they were about to amputate his leg and he came back to wrestle after after that. So, um, so Harley was extremely complimentary. And his, uh, pretty quickly, Les got into Harley's interview. And uh, Harley, Harley was a complimentary of Joe LaDuke. Uh, and Harley was the kind of champion that studied his future opponents. He really knew guys. He, you know, he did, his, he did his homework. And he knew a lot more about Joe LaDuke than I did. And that was saying a lot because Rob and I, we've been traveling with Joe in his conversion van. He called it the Starship for almost a year just about every night. And uh, I watched this interview and I realized, geez, Harley knows more about Joe than I do after a year. So, so what Harley knew was facts about Joe's Canadian background. Hmm. He knew all about Joe's brother uh, that, that had been badly injured by Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. years earlier. Uh, that came up uh, in the, in his interview. And then uh he said something about Joe LaDuke uh, had a huge heart and he had a never quit attitude, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and then he talked about uh, having heard about the lumberjacks acts that uh, Joe uses for blood oath <laughs> when <laughs> yeah. he wants to get revenge on somebody, yeah. you know, and how crazy this guy is, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and then he got personal, you know, and, and he talked about what an, Ugly man, Joe LaDuke. <laughs> <laughs> All those kind words. And oh, then yeah. That, I mean, yeah. He, he started off really good. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. he just he just he just turned to hunting uh three hundred and sixty new, you know, wow, he just uh, he destroyed what he had said yeah. earlier. Now let's talk about ugly. <laughs> so yeah, and he, you know, and he just came out and said, you know, Joe LaDuke is one of the ugliest men on earth. <laughs> And, you know, and he says he must have had real problems finding a woman to love him. Oh, my God. You know, looking like he did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it got really personal. And at one point, he actually said he felt sorry for Joe LaDuke. You know, I feel sorry for a guy like that. You know? <laughs> so it was a totally different interview than I'd ever heard Harley make. And, you know, but at the end of it, man. He was still the same old Harley race. I mean, he, he said, regardless, you know, for the pity I feel for Joe LaDuke, he said, there's no way Joe LaDuke or anybody else is ever going to take away this greatest accomplishment in my life. And he held up the belt in front of him and he said, Joe LaDuke, no matter how much you make me bleed, no matter how much you damage my body, no matter how close you get to making me give up, I'm still the baddest man on God's green earth. And he says, you'll never beat me for this 10 pounds of gold. <laughs> so when Harley was finished, wow. Joe, when the camera came back to Joe, Joe had gone from being excited and upbeat at the beginning of the profile uh -huh. to as angry as I had ever seen. Oh, him, man. my God. Yeah. I mean, Harley Race, what had happened is Harley Race in less than two minutes had totally psyched Joe LaDuke out. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just totally got the job done. So Joe looked right into the camera, man, and he growled like an angry bear, man. <laughs> <laughs> and he told, Joe, he told Harley Race that he had no right to say those personal things about him in public, that his brother and what happened to him his acts and how he used it and his private life with women had no business being brought up like this. And he said, I had some respect for you before you said these words, Harley Race. He said, but not anymore. Mm -hmm. he said, you better not pity me in two days in that Coliseum <laughs> because I'll be among all my friends and fans. And he says, now I'm going to forget about doing any wrestling at all on Monday night. Ooh, oh. <laughs> he said, I'm coming for a war with you. He said, wow. He said, I'm either going to leave that building with your 10 pounds of gold or they're going to carry me out. So Joe got up and he left to set disappearing man in a very appropriate manner into the darkness, the studio B. 
It's like, wow, oh, he, his, his, wow. his attitude had gone just that direction from bright to dark. And, uh, wow. So Les and the main studio audience, they were totally silent. They'd never heard anything like that. They'd never heard anybody get personal with an interview like that. And then they they didn't expect Joe to to go crazy. And then, you know, and I'd rarely seen Les at a loss for words. But uh, but I don't think he ever heard an interview like that either. You know. Mm, yeah. So he closed it out by simply saying, "Thanks everybody for joining us for this personality profile." What else was he going to say? Yeah. Yeah. The closing is just the closing. So, wow. So, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. I mean, so how do you, how do you follow something like that with the, the incredible Harley race whittling away at Joe LaDuke like he did? Well, you know, I'm glad I wasn't in the next match to be quite honest with you. And, uh, but it was world junior heavyweight championship match. And, uh, thankfully Nelson Royal had a lot of heat man, and it didn't take the studio long audience long to get over the profile and to and then back into hating Nelson Royal, man. And I'd been trying to get good talent for these TV championship matches. And luckily I was able to get wildfire Tommy Rich to wrestle Royal on TV, man, in a world championship mm. match. Mm. And, uh, and I, so gosh, it was really like a, I thought a feather in my cap and what a tremendous match they had. They did a whole lot of, wrestling in the match and that's what i really really wanted to happen and uh, then the royal beat him right in the middle of the ring but the fans always loved tommy man and they cheered him when it was over just like he had won so the next monday was the third time that tony charles and nelson royal had wrestled each other in less than two months mm. and uh, one of those times was a title match the other was a texas death match and uh, they had begun to hurt each other hurt each other and hate each other, man, <laughs> uh, at this point. And their matches and interviews were beginning to show that, man. So uh, they went ahead and did their interviews. But, wow, it you could tell that these guys don't like each other. So the last segment of the show began to set. It had Ron Wright, Don Carson, and the assassin. And they watched the assassin get pinned by Robert Fuller from the tag match from the week before, from the Sunday before. And uh, it didn't seem to bother them much that, uh, you know, that Rob won the match and that the assassin got beat because all three of them were much more focused on the two men wearing the mask in the ring with Rob, the Tennessee stud and the mm -hmm. Georgia job jack. <laughs> and, and they certainly had nothing good to say about the Southeastern commissioner, Don Curtis. <laughs> And his and his allowing wrestlers who had lost loser league matches to return with masks on, they said they were going to settle it simply by hurting maybe all three of these guys in the next match, which is going to be two days later. And uh, all three of those opponents they mentioned showed up at the ring for the next match, and it didn't take long for a victory. And that I'm talking about the Tennessee stud Robert and. Uh, the Georgia Jawjacker. All six of us were in the ring at once. Uh, at the end of it, with uh, Robert and the Tennessee Stud both applying a fuller leg lock to two of those guys, and the Georgia Jawjacker did exactly that. Man, he sent his man, jacked <laughs> his jaw, and sent him flying across the ring before he covered him for the win. So the three. Three went to the set with Les, and they had the entire two minutes because their opponents had taken their interview while watching the video earlier. So the discussion about hurting their opponents that Wright, Carson, and Sasson had brought up earlier was the hot topic. And it was jumped on by all three of those guys at the set, and they said their matches were no longer going to be regular six-man tags. And the one two days later in the Coliseum was a Texas death match. So a uh, six-man tag with Texas death rules. And uh, they said it was the perfect type of match to end somebody's career. So the stud and the jawjacker complimented Don Curtis for being fair about everything that had happened to them and vowed that the only way to end this history between the six of them was going to be with a bad injury to somebody, and it wasn't going to be one of them. Uh, the studio always loved that line. And yeah. two days later, the beginning of the end was going to be approaching. <laughs> Another huge TV. I can't wait until about two months to hear the numbers in the ratings books 
for those February TV shows. They ha- it's got to be phenomenal. So what happened two days later when you set everything up and you're ready for the Coliseum show? Well, Mike, Mike Stallings beat the hangman. Uh, Jimmy Golden won over David Schultz. Uh, was to be expected. Uh, Schultz was going to be leaving. Uh, the hangman was going to be going south. Actually, Stalling's going to be going south, too. Uh, Ronnie Garvin had his no-DQ opportunity for 30 minutes, but even with that dangerous clause added to the match, Roy Lee somehow managed to stay away from Garvin enough to run out the 30-minute time limit for another draw. And uh, Garvin was just furious at the end of it, man. He was like, you know, he couldn't catch him when he had him, and he, it just the match got away from him again. So, uh, you know, he was going to take it a notch higher the next week because they were going to come back in a Texas death match, and uh, that was going to give Ronnie Garvin his opportunity to do what he wanted to do with the Cowboy Roy. So six-man Texas death match on this card was another wild one, man. Uh, Robert Fuller, Tennessee stud, and a Georgia jawjacker won the match when the assassin couldn't get to his feet. After all three of, of those opponents worked on his lower body until he just couldn't get to his feet, period. And uh, that's what you have to do in a Texas death match. You get that 30-second rest period. You got a 10 count to get to your feet. And he was so bad that his lower body had been worked on by three of them so long that he just couldn't get up. So just like the last match, though, this one wasn't over. I mean, the fight just continued, and it spilled outside the ring like it had for a couple of weeks earlier, and the blood just began to flow, man. There was no blood until the, it was all over. And so the next match, mm-hmm. the next week, mm-hmm. uh, there's not going to be a problem with that outside-the-ring stuff. Uh, because it's going to be inside a steel cage. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the Southeastern Championship match between the champion Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. and Ricky Gibson, was won by the Stomper. Uh, Gigi, uh, still upset by Gibson, having put the sleeper hold on him from behind on TV, got his revenge. And uh, he knocked Gibson unconscious with something he pulled out of his jumpsuit, uh, just kind of like he had done with, uh, with Jimmy. You know, uh, and uh, he, he uh, the referee was just not able to see it. And, uh, you know, so the first world title match for the night was the World Junior Heavyweight Championship. And uh, it had two winners or two losers, depending on how you wanted to look at it. Okay. You know? <laughs> it, it, and it was a brawl more than a wrestling match. You know, uh, those two guys had had several tremendous wrestling matches, but now their matches were just brawls. And uh, so both men got knocked down. Both of them just got to fighting with each other, and referee got too close, and and one hit him, and then the other one hit him. And then a second referee came to the ring just about the time Tony Charles had pinned Nelson Royal. And that ref rolled in the ring, and he counted Royal out. But, but when Royal kicked out after the pin, uh, Charles went flying over onto the re- top of the referee's back, that second referee, and, uh, and then Royal jerked Charles up and he piledrived him. And about that time, the first referee returned to the ring, and the second one was still down, and the first referee counted Charles out <laughs> as Royal covered him. So both men had won and both men had lost. So... Obviously, in those situations, there was a long discussion between the two referees. The mm. bell had rung, and, and it was finally announced that there was no winner and that the world's junior heavyweight championship belt was going to be held up until further notice. Oh. So there was no champion, and then Nelson Royal was not the champion when he left. So uh, there's, there's going to have to be another match, obviously. So the last match for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship was won by Harley Race. And uh, as Joe had predicted, it was a bloody battle, you know, but Harley managed to pin after about 30 minutes of what was an insanely violent match. Wow, just a lot of blood. and, and But mm. fans loved it. It was, uh, it was what Joe had expected and uh, what Joe was good at. And it also was what Harley was good at. Harley could do yeah. just as good as Joe. Wow. All right. So before we get the attendance, I got to ask that. But what about ticket prices? This was a double, big double championship card. Well, 
It was a $20 again for the first row. Uh, that's that golden circle deal. And yeah, uh, that yeah. first row was still called the golden circle. But this time, there the next three rows were added to that front row that paid $20. And they paid $10 each to sit in the next three rows of ringside, which was considered the golden circle. Then they backed off the rest of the ringside seats about 10 feet from the uh, fourth row. And uh, those seats were uh, $7 instead of the 10 that mm -hmm. the people in the second, third, and fourth rows were sitting in. The first balcony seats were $6. The general admission was up a dollar, $4 for adults, $3 for kids. And the average price per ticket was just about, uh, just a little bit above $6 per ticket. <laughs> okay, so what about attendance? Let's hear it. Well, 5650 appeared attended there okay 5650 um this is on a monday night bear in mind yeah yeah that's a pretty darn big card uh and 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 uh, so the gross house was just under 34000 and uh, that was equivalent i looked it up man to being a, a basically 146610 in today's money wow Wow. So uh, on two back-to-back -back Monday nights in February of 1978, Southeastern had drawn 11,150 fans. Two Monday wow. nights. Yeah. Just, you know, not normal days. So uh, I'm going to do something this time, Dave, uh, that we haven't done in a while, man. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to break the payoffs down per person for, for, this, for this card. Oh, yeah, yeah. What we paid, okay? Okay. So Harley Race got two thousand dollars. Whoa! Joe Duke got a thousand. Hmm. Nelson Royal got eight hundred. Tony Charles got eight hundred. The Mongolian Stomper got five hundred. Ricky Gibson got five hundred. Wow! Robert Fuller got five hundred. Bob Armstrong five hundred. I got zero. I didn't take. I didn't take pay yeah. on uh, on houses. I, I let it get split between guys. Yeah. Uh, Wright got $500. Assassin got $500. Carson got $500. Ronnie Garvin got $500. And Roy Lee Welch. Damn. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and the four that were in the two opening matches, plus Gigi, all got $350 each. So that $600 average per man payoff was equal to just, just over $2,000 each in today's money. God. I mean, you're talking about really good money. They really had to be pretty thrilled with that. Was that unusual, or is that that a big night? Oh no, man, that's that, that's a big night. Uh, yeah. It was definitely considered a big night. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Okay, so that eleven thousand one hundred and fifty fans that you were talking about—that's pretty amazing for two Monday nights, especially since it was not on regular nights or afternoons at all. So these payoffs were not bad either. That's pretty cool. All right, so Stud, time to answer the learning tree question. Let's see if we can work that in this week. His name is Greg Matthew, and Greg asked, with so many great wrestlers leaving southeastern Knoxville, heading south, who was coming into Knoxville to replace them? Well, that's a great question, Mr. Matthews. I mean, uh, wow. And then, and you ask who is coming to Knoxville to replace wrestlers moving to southeastern Pensacola. Uh, and there were a lot of them. A lot of them guys were going down there. So uh, so I'm going to take this this answer, if, if it's okay, Mr. Matthews, a step further than what you've asked here. Uh, I want to give you the names of the wrestlers that were leaving Knoxville, going into other territories, uh, I'm going to tell you those that, ju that just going to be arriving from other territories and those in the first southeastern Pensacola territory, the initial crew that's going to start it down there. And uh, and I looked this up, uh, you know, because I really wanted I had to dig to get the answers to this one. And all of these moves uh, are going to take place by the end of May, 1978. So basically in the next three months from the time this event goes down, here are the people going and coming. So let's start with the present big name, Knoxville stars leaving to go to other territories and gone from Knoxville by the end of May, 1978. One of those is the assassin. The other is Joe, the Duke and gorgeous George jr. 
they're all on their way to other territories within the next three months. Wow. And those wrestlers arriving in Knoxville by the end of May 1978, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, a tremendous tag team mm. from the Memphis side of the state, mm -hmm. the great Malenko. Wow. Bob Roop, Rip Smith, Dick Steinborn, and the pro Doug Gilbert are both coming back. Uh, uh, wrestlers in the southeastern Pensacola crew by the end of May 1978. These are the guys that are going to start that crew down there. Mm -hmm. Is Bob Armstrong, myself, Tony Charles, Roy Lee Welch, Leon Baxter, the wrestling pro. Yeah. David Schultz, Eddie Mansfield, Mike Stallings, Eddie Sullivan, and Roger Smith and Randy Colley, the two assassins, <laughs> were going to be managed by Rip Tyler. I'm telling you, that's a remarkable turnover of talent and coordination of even the movement in this whole process, especially from the Knoxville Territory to the new southeastern Pensacola. Wow. Well, stars were definitely coming and going, man. That was what was happening. It was the name of the game. It was the nature of the wrestling business back in those days. So a great question today, Dave. You know, when I started figuring out the answer, uh, I had no idea that all this happened in just three-month period of time in 1978. And my life, to be honest with you, man, at this at this point, it was kind of a blur, man. Uh, <laughs> and so, so much was happening so fast. Wow, I was just, I was having a hard time making it from day to day. I mean, at 30 years of age, and it was a blur. I can't imagine that stud with all you had going on. <laughs> All right, I tell you what, another absolutely fascinating stud cast is now in the books. I'm sure there's never been a wrestling podcast ever that covers the history of what an owner was doing daily to develop wrestling companies in America. The cards, the angles, the sizes of the crowds, and in this one, even the wrestlers' payoffs were discussed. I thought that was pretty cool. Every one of these stud casts is absolutely, truly Historic. And folks, I tell you what, Facebook for Ron, do not friend request the stud on his Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page. It has a maximum of 5,000 fans. It's been full for years. To become friends with him on Facebook, simply go to either his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, or his Ron Fuller Welch author page. You can like and follow him there. You'll automatically become friends that way. Anything that happens on one page, Happens on all of the pages so you never miss out. On Twitter, follow him as Ron Fuller Welch. Easy to find. YouTube Southeastern Rewind is where you find everything Ron Fuller Welch. Continental and USA TV shows, they're all there. Now, Gulf Coast TV wrestling shows go up every Monday. Don't miss new stud stories every Tuesday. New stud cast every Wednesday, just like this one a new Continental TV show every Thursday, and a new Southeastern classic films never before seen on YouTube every Sunday. Subscribe now. Ring the bell icon and find the fastest growing old school wrestling YouTube channel in the world. Every time something new is added to the channel, we'll ring your bell. You'll be the first to know. Find everything on Ron's website tnstud.com it's famous tnstud.com studcast super studcast historic videos photo gallery his stud store with souvenirs of all kinds autograph photos tremendous continental dvd wrestling five packs folks have been loving these things for years and we've still got plenty t-shirts tennessee stud mask and his chilling novel brutus Check it out now. It's all at tnstud.com. Man, I don't know how you keep up with this, Stud. So where do we ride next week? What's happening on the next Studcast? Well, in today's training next week, uh, we're going to be in the WTVY TV studio in Dothan, Alabama. And wow. we'll be there to prepare for the first Southeastern Pensacola TV show ever done. And we'll be discussing the set behind the host, Charlie Platt. Uh, what type of set we're going to have. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, an educational visit with the station employees in the control room. I'm actually going to be teaching them how to do an instant replay 
among some of the other technical firsts that we're witnessing for the first time that they had never wow. seen before wow. in the wrestling program. Wow. So uh, we we're going to be focusing on the great Knoxville card of Sunday, February 26th. It's got a six-man cage match. It's got Tony Charles' first ever shot at the Mongolian Stomper Southeastern title. It's got a Texas death match between Ronnie Garvin and Roy Lee Welch, plus three other matches. And it'll be the last February TV in the rating period, and it'll obviously be loaded again. So we're going to talk about that TV show promoting the card, the results of the card, and the attendance of that card. And the Learning Tree question next week is another great one. Uh, it's asking why Pensacola was becoming the home for the new territory rather than Mobile, Alabama, the home city my father chose in 1954 when he opened Gulf Coast Wrestling there. So I want to thank everyone for listening today and their support for the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. Please tell your friends and neighbors about us. Take care of yourselves out there and others, and may God bless us all. All right. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you again for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.